to be a blessing for us as we receive it. <clears throat> Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, is much like the verse that closed out 1 Corinthians 1. It's, it's almost like an expansion of the thought that we find there, that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because whether it comes to what is proclaimed, as this chapter speaks of, or what is believed, the glory is meant to rest in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If there's to be boasting in our lives, whether as leaders in the church or as members in the church, there is no difference. That boasting needs to be found in God for the sake of Jesus Christ. And our passage speaks as such in verse 5, where we read that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's why our, our passage, or our, our sermon, I should say, tonight is, is entitled the, the Basis of Our Faith, or more, more specifically, the Divine Basis of Our Faith. Our faith does not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Even the Apostle Paul says that about himself, as he proclaims. The Christ-centered Word of God has to be proclaimed to us, and the Spirit of God has to reveal that word to us. Because otherwise, we would never glory in the Lord, and the glory of the Lord would never be proclaimed. And so we focus then on that divine basis of our faith tonight from 1 Corinthians 2. First of all, that the Christ-centered word of God has to be proclaimed. And that is something that the apostle says that he does. He comes proclaiming. Uh, but he doesn't do it in lofty speech. In our passage, it may sound like Paul's proclaiming the word of God without a whole lot of competence, with not too much aptitude, with not so much excellence that way. And you'd be tempted to think that what Paul is saying here is that he's just a, he just brings this super simple message uh, that may not even be very well presented when he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It makes it almost sound like he could have come in a slipshod manner to bring what he brought, which would only just justify the more, as some of his opponents would think, that Paul wasn't much. But that's not what Paul says here. When he says that he doesn't come with eloquence and wisdom, He's simply making the point that when it, when it comes to what he proclaims, he's not proclaiming anything either in the manner or the matter of his proclamation that would turn people's head to anybody else than Christ or the triune God. Christians were tempted, as we saw in times past, and we'll see more of it because it's coming up in chapter 3 again, they're tempted to follow people instead of Christ. They're tempted to follow their favorite Christian superstar instead of Christ himself. But whether it was in the manner or the message, Paul was clearly proclaiming 
the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it made a difference then in the way that he approached the proclamation. It says in our passage that he came with tears and with weakness and trembling. Now, who does that? Who comes that way except a humble person? A person that that is not trying to come as if he was proclaiming himself. Who comes that way unless it's someone who thinks little about himself in comparison to the one that he's proclaiming? Paul could not look at himself with pride. And here's why. First of all, this message that he brings is God's testimony and not his. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is, this is God's word that's coming. It's God's mystery that's uncovering, being uncovered through the proclamation of the gospel, the saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul has nothing to proclaim about himself. He, he's not coming so that people will say, I follow Paul. It's God's testimony about Christ's crucifixion that's received by the power of the Spirit as we continue to read, who applies the word to people's hearts. There's no place here for Paul. It's kind of like what John the Baptist would say, I must decrease, he must increase. This isn't a place for, for the person in the pulpit or the person who's proclaiming to leave people with the idea that this person is somebody. He's coming to proclaim that Christ is somebody. He's coming to proclaim that God is somebody. Now that doesn't mean there's there's not boast that that such boasting uh, could happen. There's not supposed to be any room for the boasting of a preacher or for people to get star crazed about their preacher. But that doesn't mean it's not a temptation for for preachers or, or for those who hear them. The preacher's message might be rejected, but there's always a temptation of making one's ministry, whether faithful or not, a bad or worse ministry, uh, because the star of the show becomes the man behind the pulpit, or whoever is behind the pulpit. It's that person that's been the reason for the success of the church. It's, it's that person that's bringing the money in. It's that person who's so wonderful. It's, it, it's that person who's worthy of following. But, but the basis and the subject of our faith is, is found in Christ and Him crucified. And that needs to be the all in all in the Christian message, the Christian faith, Christian life. We've seen a lot of that of late. We've been thinking about the practical side of faith. And uh, even last week again, as we mentioned earlier, the fact that our boasting is not to be in ourselves but in the Lord. No matter... Uh, where it is that we're preaching in the Word of God today, Christ needs to be the ultimate subject for the preacher. It, it needs to be that way because Christ is, is the reason for the Word to be revealed in the first place. It needs to be that way because Christ is the all in all. He needs to be the all in all in our lives. So it's not surprising that He should be the all in all 
in the message that's being proclaimed and, and needs to be that way in the preacher's life as well as in his preaching. It's tempting for the preacher and for his hearers to, to want to preach and then in turn hear something different than this prophet. Something that our, like Paul would say otherwise, that our itching ears want to hear. Tempting to make the gospel a social gospel. It's tempting to make it a gospel based on race. It's tempting to make it a gospel about how, how you can get successful and rich and influence people. It's, it's tempting to ignore sound doctrine because who wants to hear that anyway? That's not very appealing. That's not very attractive. It can be tempting to make it a gospel that's first of all about me or about you. And it's tempting to make the proclamation something that says nothing about Jesus. It's tempting to make the message something that will simply secure one's own ministry. Very pragmatic proclamation that way. But the proclamation isn't about me or you, first of all. It's not about being slick and cute or using various tricks to make people laugh or be entertained or enthralled and to say, well, isn't he a very clever man? Or how charismatic is it he? Or how marvelously he is able to manipulate people with all the bells and whistles at his disposal. No, no preacher needs to do any of that. Because we have the most powerful tool at our disposal. It may seem foolish to some, folly, weak to others. But to those who believe, the gospel is the power of God. His spirit. The proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The proclamation of the triune God. Like Paul, that, that's all that's needed. And for those who are listening to the gospel, that's all that they should want. But people will say, but not everybody reacts well to preaching, so why not use a, a, other means? No, not everybody will react well. Some people react well, and some people don't. You don't want the reason, of course, for people to react poorly because you're preaching poorly, or you're preaching lifelessly, irrelevantly, or not according to the Scriptures. But, but even when you preach lively and clearly and Faithfully, it doesn't always win people over. And the Apostle's mindful of that in this passage. But that's why people want to use other means in the service. We, we need to use whatever works. That's what matters. To make people react the way that we want them to react, you see. And then, and then, then the proclamation, or, the, or I should say the means, becomes more manipulative. A means of men, a, a means of man's wits and wisdom to accomplish what they set out to do. But then again, we're, we're relying on ourselves then, aren't we? And, and our wits and our wisdom. And then faith has be, been created, the faith that's been created is the faith that's not based on the power of God, but on the wisdom of men. And like we said, it wasn't that Paul didn't use sound arguments or that and that he wasn't profound, or that he used this Sunday school simple simplicity to, to those to whom he spoke. It's just that Paul knew 
that even if he preached his heart out about Christ, which he did, to the point of putting himself in a vulnerable place of even having people wanting to kill him, that was devotion. It still was left not to him, but to the Spirit of God. And and he's going to elaborate more about that in chapter 3, when he talks about the fact that he might have watered and followed my plan of the seed, but God gives the increase. It's still left to the Spirit of God, which is really our second point here about who it is that changes the, the hearts of people. He could have used the soundest of arguments, the most vivid of presentations, but unless the Spirit would change people, they wouldn't change. And that's, that's the truth. Unless the Spirit's at work, people will not only reject the gospel, but they'll also crucify the Lord of glory, says Paul. He mentions that in our passage, that none of the rulers of this age understood the gospel, because if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 14 says, the natural person doesn't accept the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. But I mean, if you think about it, you know, who was it that was able to reveal the truth about God and the truth about things greater than Jesus Christ could? Nobody, after all, revealed God more clearly than the Word made flesh the Lord of glory himself. And regardless, people followed the wisdom of the world, not by exalting Christ as he deserved, but by wanting him shamed by crucifixion. That's why this is the most heinous of crimes ever. Because the Lord of glory was shamed by crucifixion by those who rejected him who did not have the Spirit of God within them. Such was the Spirit, says Paul, that rested on the rulers of his age and this worldly age, a Spirit that does not lead to glory but to death. And what was needed for them was was the one whom they didn't have at work in, in them. It was the Spirit of God. It wasn't that the Gospel wasn't presented to them, but it was like a mystery to them. The gospel is a mystery to many people today. Uh, you, you wish you could get through to them, young and old alike. And sometimes when people are proclaiming God's word, that, that again, when the fleshly part of things gets to you, or maybe it's simply because you, you care about people, it frustrates you. Because you say, isn't that very clear to them? Isn't it, isn't it obvious that, that the grace of God should be the motivating factor of their life, the motivating factor to worship, the motivating factor in every aspect of their life? And, and people don't get it. They just go on with life. Now, we shouldn't stop trying to get through to them, but for them, the gospel can be a, like a mystery that's hidden to them. They just don't get it. And it's not because they're not intelligent. There's plenty of intelligent people that don't believe in the gospel. But it's because they're ruled by the wisdom of this age. And and they're the ones that say that the gospel is weak 
and it's foolish. Their eyes don't see, their, their ears don't hear. Now, that's why we need to pray. It's why we pray for ourselves, isn't it? When we're before the Word, that people will, not only that they'll hear the Gospel, but that the Spirit will be at work with the Gospel to change people's lives. But the gospel doesn't get through to people when the Spirit's at work. I should say the gospel does get through to people when, when the Spirit is at work. For such a people, the gospel is, is not a mystery to them that leaves them to perish. It's a gospel that has prepared, been prepared for them and predestined for them, proclaimed to them, and revealed to them by the Spirit of God so that they might not perish but know the glory of the Lord of glory. The reason that the Spirit can reveal this gospel to us that would otherwise be a mystery to us is because the Spirit knows, as our pastor, the mind of God. And he knows his gospel plans from eternity. And yet realized in time in Christ. And just like the, the apostle here, no one knows those hidden things in us except our, our own spirit. So also nobody knows the hidden things of God like the Holy Spirit. And that makes the Holy Spirit the appropriate candidate to reveal those gospel truths to our hearts. So we can receive the good things that God has in store for us from eternity and now in Jesus Christ. The Spirit does that when this, the word is proclaimed. And without the Spirit, we, would, we wouldn't accept those matters. We, we would be content with the wisdom of the world, which puts us at the center of the universe, which seems comfortable, which seems nice. Instead of Christ, which is the reality of things. A wisdom that seeks to find its salvation in ourselves, it's a wisdom that's content to live for self instead of the Lord and see things from the perspective of the world instead of the perspective of the Word. Paul says, though, that it's when we know the Spirit's work in our lives that we can be discerning. You know, without the Spirit, we can't know wisdom. We wouldn't know about why we're here and who we are. We we wouldn't know the purpose of life, and before we know it, we, we, we will have died without God and without help in the world. The passage says to us that nobody judges us. It says in verse 15, a spiritual person judges all things, but and that's a discernment that he's able to have, but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, he doesn't mean that the spiritual man never needs correcting. But he's certainly not and cannot be judged for being a Christian by people who don't have the Spirit of God in their lives. They're judged by no one that way. Just like no one has the right to judge God as if they think they know Him like the Spirit does. So also no one has the right as an unbeliever to judge a Christian by saying, well, you're just backward, or you're just old-fashioned, or you're just foolish, or you're just weak. You just use these, 
these superstitious things as crutches to get through life. That's why you trust in a dead Christ. That's why you trust in Christ crucified. That's why your trust is in the Word of God. No, it's, they don't have any right to, to judge that way. For what happens for the unbeliever, the spiritual man, is that we now have the mind of Christ, thanks to the Spirit of Christ at work in our lives. We can see things in the way they ought to be seen. We can live life in a real way, a purposeful way, an enlightened way. Because God has been at work in us through His Spirit. The revelation given by God's Spirit, then, along with the proclamation of God's Christ-centered life, is the divine basis for our faith. So, so why was this all being brought up to the Corinthians in the first place? Why was God, why was Jesus getting so deep, or why was Paul getting so deep in the weeds about this uh, way in which the Spirit knew the thoughts of God and how he revealed those thoughts to, to people? Well, there were those again in Corinth who thought that they were something because of, of what they could do or what they believed or who they followed. And what the apostles doing here is giving them a reality check to do for them what has happened to Paul, who's come to tears, who's come to trembling, as he speaks about the ways in which that he's coming with the word of God, as he's come in a humble manner. And he's basically saying to these Corinthians, smarten up. Humble yourself. Don't think so great about yourself. Don't think you're somebody in and of yourself because of what you've done, because of what you believe, because of, of what you thought. Smart enough? Humble yourself. And instead of bragging about yourself or some other mere human that you're following, would you get back to what you're supposed to be doing? Would you get back to the, the idea that life is not about how smart you are and, and who you know and, and who you follow in this world. It's about boasting in the Lord. It's about directing one's boasting to the Lord of glory. Who alone has made you? Who alone has remade you? Who you are by His work and the Father's word and the Spirit's power. That's the basis of your faith. It's not based on you. It's not based on what you did. It's based on what God has done. And that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? For us. That's why we kind of end like we begin here. Because this chapter 2 brings us back to chapter 1. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the philosopher? Where are the somebodies? Where are those spiritual celebrities and Olympians? They're nowhere to be found. Because we're nothing without grace. And we're nothing without Christ. And we're nothing without the Spirit. And we're nothing without the Word of God. So don't brag about yourself, says the Apostle. Let's not brag about ourselves. But because the triune God, but because of the Spirit, because of Christ, because of the Word of God, now we have a firm footing of faith. 
Now we have a way to press on. We have become something. But it's something that we could never have been on our own. We've been transformed. We've been changed. We didn't do it ourselves. It was the gift of God. We've become something. We've become the children of God, adopted by God. He brought, and we're bound for glory. And that's what's to be proclaimed by the preacher. And that's what's to be professed in our lives. And that's to be our boast. It may make all the difference in the way that we treat one another as we proclaim the gospel to the world. And in our praise of God, we get reminded here again, don't we, of the depth to which we ought to praise our God. Because we're nothing in ourselves. But we're something. Gloriously something. Only because of God. For His praise. And so once again, as chapter 1 ended, and as 1 Corinthians 2 begins, we understand a little bit better than why 1 Corinthians 2 occurs because it's really fleshing out the very idea of 1 Corinthians 1.31. Let him boast. Let him boast in the Lord because he's the divine basis of our faith. And that happens through the proclamation of his Christ-centered word and the revelation of the gospel that's given by the Spirit of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all involved. And that's the power of God. And how we need to remember all the time that this should be what we should hope in our life. That this is the power at work in our life through, through faith in Christ. When we do, we'll find more and more, and other people will too. The bragging that we're doing, not in ourselves, the glory that we're giving is to the Lord of glory. The boasting that we're doing is boasting in the Lord. Amen. Let's take a moment to pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, again tonight,